Attention, this is not legal advice. If you are experiencing a legal emergency, contact an attorney or your local public defender's office. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Gin and Justice. justice hey i'm justine and i'm amanda welcome to another episode of gin and justice like the end of november almost so crazy almost so crazy and we're almost in 2024 guys we were before we started recording amanda was going to try and guess what i was talking about and then (laughs) she gave up (laughs) i didn't want to ruin it for myself We try and have genuine reactions. <laughs> <laughs> we try to be the opposite of fake on the show. Yes. Yeah. My two things I wanted to talk about before we get into this week's guests are kind of related. Mm. Mine's probably kind of. not. Okay. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to mention this news article that I saw this morning. New York will automatically seal old criminal records under a new law signed by Governor Hochul. And it says New Yorkers that complete their sentences and that stay out of trouble for a certain period of time will have their criminal records automatically sealed under the long-awaited bill signed into law by Governor Hochul on Thursday. New York joins a slew of other states, including California, New Jersey, and Michigan, which have passed similar measures in recent years. Oh, that's awesome. It's fucking cool. Doesn't sound like it'll help my loved ones in New York, maybe. (laughs) The staying out of trouble part. I think I remember when this was going through the New York legislator and we were talking about some of the opponents' reactions that were absolutely ridiculous. And I don't remember what they were, but their points were absolutely ridiculous. But And I know it doesn't uh, seal all crimes, obviously any violent, dangerous, or sexually motivated crimes. I don't believe it includes. It doesn't. Um, right. So, yeah. And it's a certain amount of time, like uh, misdemeanors, I think it was three years and then for felonies it was like eight years without getting in trouble which i think is great i think it is too i don't think people should be tied to a label from a mistake they made or a choice they made you know yeah governor hokel said they've paid their debt to society they've gone through the process they've done their time they're done but when they re-enter society there's still barriers to housing and jobs i say no more we're here to correct this injustice and then she was talking about re-entry issues and all that that's great because when uh cuomo stepped down Mm -hmm. i was sad because he had such a positive impact on the criminal justice system so i was a little sad i don't know what's going on with the allegations against him and that's probably why he stepped down (laughs) per usual we should stop letting them do things in general but whatever Um, it's my hot take (laughs) but you know he had reduced the prison system in new york by a substantial mm-hmm. amount during the time he had been in office and he had put forth a bunch of measures that were just really progressive in the criminal justice reform uh alley and so when he stepped down i was like really nervous about what was going to come you know yeah especially because of the political climate in new york at the time there was you know i as much of as everywhere there's a very polarized view and i was actually just talking to some of my colleagues recently 
who also have massive amounts of student loan debt, about how it's really frustrating that the Democrats have taken up, you know, this point with student loan debt because of the political climate where we're at right now and everything being so polarized. Whatever issue one party takes up, the other party like opposite. So yeah, so like a few years ago, you know, conservatives and Republicans didn't even know or care or mention or have any position on student loan debt. But now because the Democrats have like driven this, you know, Mm -hmm. forgive student loan debt. Uh, now it's like an opposing point, which makes me as someone who has massive amounts of student loan debt mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah, hopefully one day I can pay off or whatever, right. qualify for some sort of forgiveness or something, um, makes me very nervous because and it's not like it would just affect like one party over another. Like there's young Republicans in student loan debt. Yeah. I'm sure of it. <laughs> so. yes. Yeah. It, well, it affects millions of people so yeah so that's the really frustrating i just wish people wouldn't go so hard on issues just to do it you know just to Mm -hmm. be loud about it and to get the support of a certain group of people because that's really all it's about it's some political show to get support from Mm -hmm. one group of affected people so they're targeting like oh okay let's target blacks because they make up millions of people oh let's target student loan borrowers because they make up millions of people they're not targeting small populations like so you know it's just frustrating that that's like the it's all a show so anyways there's that but i wanted to talk to you about a couple of different articles that i was reading that i thought were really interesting (laughs) first and foremost uh this one connecticut has been doing some research okay okay and collecting evidence and releasing reports in order to find the following that and this is the title of the article and it's by the connecticut public by leslie cosme torres so the title of the article is connecticut children should not be put in adult prisons new report says (laughs) Okay. Yep. And then the subtitle is the state state of youth justice report focused on the benefits of removing children under the age of 18 from adult prisons throughout the state. So the article goes through basically this comprehensive report that was put out by this agency um, that basically finds that having children in adult prisons is like really bad for them. (laughs) You don't say. Yeah. So, um, and it talks about like the amount of money that the state currently spends on incarcerating Connecticut's youth. And then they also talk about while these kids are in detention facility, adult detention facilities, they can cost as high as between $1,350 per day to, you know, for an average of 185 stays before they're either moved into a youth program or, you know, their case is closed. Anyway, so with this, they are hoping there is a an organization called the Connecticut Justice Alliance. They are an advocacy organization dedicated to ending youth criminalization. Um, they kind of put forth some points that they think would help with this and kind of maybe help transition away from imprisoning children. Um, and one of them is making the minimum arrest age to be at least 12. Right now, their arrest age is 10. So, and their ultimate oh God, goal is yeah. to have a minimum arrest age of 14. So, one of the 
things they talk about is when these kids are in adult prisons, whether that's like adult jails or adult, you know, prisons while mm-hmm. they're, you know, either depending on what the, you know, where right. the status of their case is and whatever, they don't have access to educational programs or things that youth do in the actual youth detention centers. So because they don't have those at the adult prisons, because they're, you know, adults built for dealing with adults. So, um, so while they're being held like pre-trial at like an adult jail, um, while they're waiting for their case to close or whatever, they don't have access to any of those things. So if you have like a kid that's arrested, you know, in the middle of the school year or something, and they're just sitting there for like six months. And if you think about how important it is for, you know, kids to be learning during that time period. I mean, if you like anybody who has kids and, or like, you know, sees kids Mm -hmm. regularly and they kids, when they come back from summer vacation, like just how quickly those two months can just diminish a kid's brain just from not having that structure and not having that learning. They lose so much Mm -hmm. in just those two months. So, um, so anyway, so that is really interesting. I will make sure to put that in the show notes so you guys can read about what that report kind of comes out with. And then I believe there's a link to the actual report um, that you can read all of their findings and kind of methods that they used to come up with all that data. So, you know, because data is important. Sure is. But we'll come back to that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of data, more data. I have the second one. So this is also related to data in jail and prison. Um, We love this one I thought would be of particular interest because this is something I think we've talked about on the show, obviously as a theme of the show since we started almost, you know, three years ago. I just had to think, I was like, wait, when did we start? (laughs) I almost said two, but I was like, no, wait, we passed that. (laughs) So anyways, so this article is in... The publication is Reason, and the title of the article is Florida's Bloated Prison System Will Cost Billions to Maintain by C.J. Ciarmarella. So this article is really interesting. Um, They have collected a bunch of data, and they're talking about, um, so the state actually paid for this report to be created. Um, They wanted to see, I'm assuming, what the cost of everything is. And uh, based on the conviction rate and kind of the way, because if you obviously look at like a graph, you can see Mm -hmm. the increase of incarceration in the state of Florida. They're not doing about anything about the infrastructure here. So those numbers are going to. Yeah. So they are basing their projections on the rate of incarceration. Right population increase over Mm -hmm. time because it's like been a pretty steady upstream Mm -hmm. so they estimate uh, and i'm going to pull like a few quotes from this article but they estimate between 6 billion and 12 billion over the next 20 years to keep their troubled department of corrections afloat um they presented three different options to lawmakers um, obviously going from most expensive to least expensive so And these are in order to modernize or mitigate its prison system. And so it's interesting, just to give you a little bit more stats, right now the Florida prison system population is around 89,000 people, and they project it to increase to at least 107,000 by 2042. 
uh, they found that 25 DOC facilities were in poor condition and 16 were in critical condition. And regardless of which of those three options the legislators choose, the price tag does include $580 million for air conditioning systems. And they oh, state that 75% of Florida state prison systems or uh, Florida state prisons do not have air conditioning, 75%. So which like we knew but i didn't have an actual number on the percentage yeah. so that was interesting uh 2.2 billion for immediate repairs and then 200 million to 700 million a year to increase staffing i think it's time that we burn it to the ground and figure out something new because this is not well, sustainable so yeah so interesting because greg newburn the director of uh, criminal justice at the niskanen center says Quote, the findings in the report confirm what lawmakers in both parties and Department of Corrections leadership have been saying for years, which is that the state prison system is in crisis and unsustainable. So to go on your unsustainable. So now the Florida legislator is basically going to find or is needs to find a solution for a problem that is self-created. Mm -hmm. So in this article talks about how in the 1990s and the early 2000s, Florida passed tough mandatory minimum sentencing laws that resulted in thousands of low level and first time offenders being sentenced to decades in prison. Now that population is getting older and much more expensive to care for. Nearly a third of incarcerated people in Florida prisons are 50 or older. Mm. So they talk about how obviously that translates to healthcare costs. Yeah. And this is heartbreaking, doesn't surprise me, but I hadn't heard any specific singular stories, right? Like obviously mm -hmm. we know the healthcare system in the prisons is awful. Right. So this article talks about the case of Will Elmer Williams, a former Florida inmate. Florida prison officials and medical staff allowed Williams' prostate cancer to spread untreated until he was left paralyzed, terminally ill, and afflicted with infected bed sores that rotted to the bone. Oh, my God. So, obviously, they also cite to low pay, high turnover, understaffing, uh, culture of violence, cover-ups, and corruption in prisons across the state, which, obviously, we've talked about in this podcast with with mark caruso so and the emails that we've gotten about it also and then they cite to that 2020 department of justice report that talked about lowell correctional institution mm. which uh i did learn from this article is the largest women's prison in the country and how that notorious for raping yeah, so how basically that prison was a setup for uh, frequent sexual assaults, um, which, you know, they argue is a violation of the Eighth Amendment, which I would also side with. Yeah. Um, so and then they quote Jeff Brandis, former Senator Jeff Brandis, who spoke on this back in 2019. Uh, and he said, you know, we are a prison system that's overstuffed and underguarded, and that is a lethal combination of policies, which is just true. Like, overstuffed and underguarded. That's yeah. like a nightmare waiting to happen. Uh, it, it is happening. So, um, he, then they talk about how he and some other bipartisan lawmakers attempted to pass, you know, several sentencing reform bills that the Republican dominated Florida legislator balked at. And so, 
now they're basically talking about a solution of building new prisons because like god forbid we get rid of mandatory minimums or allow right. judges to have discretion because that's like wild so or you know like invest in some treatment so the uh new burn was suggesting improving law enforcement funding and clearance rates funding evidence-based substance abuse accountability programs and experimenting with home confinement and electronic monitoring it's interesting because we do use house arrest mm-hmm. and electronic monitoring here in florida it is truly a setup for prison you know there we have it's called community control here in florida it is house arrest essentially you are only allowed to leave your house to do uh, necessities you are allowed to work and you're allowed to leave to get like groceries and all this stuff but you have to be following you have to turn your schedule in every week that accounts for every hour of your whereabouts and you have to turn that into your officer and you have to be like if you say you're going to be at walmart between five and six o'clock in whatever Mm-hmm. you know location like they're gonna go look for you there and if you're not there which how are they gonna find you in walmart i don't know and then they're gonna call you and say hey i'm at the walmart come meet me you know here they will show up at your house at two o'clock in the morning so if you're a heavy sleeper and you don't answer the door and you don't answer the door when you know they come and check on you to make sure you're home like you're violated and you're mm-hmm. going to prison so you know i don't think that's really an answer but that's you know one of the suggestions that this also guy says you can't let that thing die Right, right. You have to charge exactly. It. Exactly. So, uh, you also have to have Wi-Fi, which I learned recently. You have to have internet to make sure that it's. God, with know, my like, internet issues, I'd get sent straight to jail. Right. So, do you remember the old house I lived in? My electricity was constantly going out for mm-hmm. whatever reason. It was on a really weak power grid. So, anyways, they also suggested expanding the use of medical release for offenders who are elderly, infirm, or no longer pose a risk to society. It seems like common sense. Yeah, they also suggested restoring parole, uh, which it abolished in 1983. And again, they talked about, uh, you know, rolling back some mandatory minimum sentences. So, this is another heartbreaking, this is another heartbreaking story. Uh, They talked about in 2021, Reasons, which is the publisher of this article, received a letter from Teresa Mathis, an incarcerated Florida grandmother who is serving a 25-year mandatory sentence for a first-time drug offense. The legislator had rolled back the sentencing law that sent her to prison in 2014, but bills to make those changes retroactive, meaning Mm -hmm. apply to people who were sentenced prior to the law never passed leaving her and hundreds of others to continue serving sentences that the legislator acknowledged were a mistake so she died while her letter was in transit yeah so anyways this is a really good article that really talks about the critical direction that the florida prison system is heading and you know, basically, like you said, it's unsustainable. And that's mm-hmm. what several important lawmakers have said, important figures in the community, in the state, in organizations that have evidence-based data on that. That's what they've all said. So anyways, Florida has a really high aging population in its prison system. You know, uh, I think the importance of second look legislation, compassionate release, those things are at the very least a really good start to help reduce that. I mean, when you have somebody who's like serving a life sentence when somebody wasn't killed, you know, that doesn't really make sense. And, you know, when they're aging and 
I really just don't think anybody should be in prison for drug charges either. Oh, well, that too. Like, it's just crazy that we're criminalizing this. Yeah, it's so wild. So anyways, I'll make sure that's in the show notes as well. So that was a really interesting article. So what we've learned today is that Connecticut is learning that it's like not okay to jail children and Florida is realizing that all of the harsh laws they passed in the 90s and 2000s is contributing majorly to their failing prison system. So there's that. Yeah, wow, we really. But anyways, we said we were going to come back to data. Yes. So I want to talk about Justice Innovation Lab. Yes. So they are building data-informed, human-centered solutions for a more equitable, effective, and fair justice system. Justice Innovation Lab partners with decision makers who have the power to make impactful changes to the criminal legal system. We collaborate extensively with local prosecutors who have widespread authority and discretion to drive reforms. Unless you're in Florida, then you can't really use your discretion. Um, We also work with judges, law enforcement officers, and community organizations as they have unique capabilities to help change take root. Working with our local partners and their data, we integrate systems mapping, data analysis, human-centered design, and interactive training sessions to drive innovative change through our collaborative data-informed approach. Insights gained through our partnerships allow us to both generate solutions tailored to individual jurisdictions and develop broadly applicable interventions. Dogs are excited about it. Oh, can you hear them? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> our guest is the executive director and founder of Justice Innovation Lab. And yeah, so, so cool. he had so much background and information to say, but also even more exciting. He wrote a book fire on the levee and it's a true story about his time as a prosecutor and it's about a police cover-up of a shooting in new orleans hurricane katrina era so exciting yeah but we'll let him tell you about it yeah so without further ado we're so excited to bring you this week's guest who had so much information and has so much experience within our criminal legal system and has so much light to shed and Mm -hmm. it's just really cool it's just very cool to talk to him and kind of get his perspective and on solutions that he thinks are very doable yeah which is very hopeful you know especially with the articles we just kind of (laughs) or i just kind of talked about so not amanda so much he had the positive one today so that's nice rare for me (laughs) oh my goodness so anyways we're so excited all rise for Jared, Jared Fishman. All right, guys. Gavel gang, I should say. This week, we are here with Jared Fishman. He is the executive director of Justice Innovation Lab, and he just authored a book, Fire on the Levee. So we are super excited to talk to him about both of those things. Jared, welcome. Thank you for being here. For having me on the show. Really excited to be here today. Awesome. So I kind of start with everyone. What is your relationship to the criminal justice system? 
Uh, I have a long relationship with the criminal justice system. Uh, I was a federal prosecutor for 15 years. I worked in the civil rights division of the Justice Department, where I worked on enforcing America's civil rights laws from hate crimes to human trafficking to police misconduct. Uh, and now I work for a nonprofit organization that works very closely with justice system decision makers, with police officers, with prosecutors. Uh, with courts to help them use data to make the justice system more safe and effective uh, and uh, to be more fair. I love awesome. that. <laughs> I also love how it's called Justice Innovation Lab because you guys are using evidence and science, which implies mm -hmm. a lab. So I love that. Whoever mm -hmm. came up with that name, five stars to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It was me. Awesome. <laughs> I kind of figured, but you know, I didn't want to assume. <laughs> yeah, no, our, you know, the project started because uh, I had been a prosecutor for a really long time. I did a lot of investigations of police officers uh, for misconduct, including the murder of Walter Scott in Charleston, South Carolina, who was killed by a police officer back in 2015. And doing work down there, uh, it became quite clear that even Incidents like that are just symptoms of, of broader dysfunction within the justice system. And in my conversations with the local prosecutor, who I got to know quite well, she said, you know, we've been collecting a lot of data on how we make decisions uh, about everything from who's coming into our system to who's being charged to what's happening to them on the back end. And she wanted to know whether it was possible to use this data on their decision making to figure out, are they being fair or not? And it was kind of precisely the question that I wanted to spend the next part of my career answering. And so using data from justice system, justice system decision makers like, like prosecutors, we can look at the collective decision making and try to figure out where the system uh, could be more fair and where it could be more effective. That's awesome. It's really you... nice to hear too. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what prosecutors were talking about. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, I think a lot of us see time and time again um, that the outcomes that are coming out of our system are not what we're wanting. Mm -hmm. uh, our systems overrun with people who are suffering from mental health issues, they're suffering from addiction and poverty issues. Uh, and prosecutors are responding to the cases that come in front of them. And a lot of times the question is, does the evidence support a charge? And right. a lot of the times the answer is yes, the evidence does support the charge. But does that mean that that's the right way that we should be handling the case is that is prosecuting person uh, going to give the outcomes that we want and and what a lot of people inside the system know is no that is not the case we want to try to be able to find alternatives where they exist we want to make sure that people who shouldn't be in the system get out of it as quickly as possible and so we try to use data and understand the levers that are available right now without changing any laws to begin to make the system less harmful Oh, I love that. So do you cool. feel like um do you feel like a lot of places are receptive to that or do you get pushback? Well, we only work with people who want to work with us. I think a key part of that helps. a key part of our <laughs> theory of change is that we want to find leaders who are ready to take on some of the hardest, most complicated issues in our system and do something about it. And yeah. we're looking for people who want to use evidence to do that, who want to be thoughtful about doing it, who want to approach this with a bit of humility. Because a lot of reforms that we've seen over the years have not always had the outcomes that we want. And so right. we bring a scientific uh, hypothesis mindset, as we say to this, where we have ideas of what we think is wrong going in. And we can analyze that and we can test it and look at it over time to make sure that we're right. And where we are right, we pilot projects to try to, to, try to have even greater impact. And then we'll study those. And as those work, 
expand them even further. Can you talk about some of the pilot projects? Yeah. So one of the things that we found early in our work in South Carolina was that one in four cases that were in the system were being dismissed for insufficient evidence, right? 25% of cases that were coming in were being thrown out because the evidence wasn't, wasn't appropriate. But what we also saw was that it was taking that office about 200 days on average to, to make that decision. 200, I believe it's 221 days. And, and what that meant was some people are detained. They're, they're in jail while this is being worked out. Many people are out, but they're out on a bond that they'll never get back. Uh, they're all having their lives disrupted. They're having to come to courts. And so the mere, the mere fact that one is in the system for that long can be incredibly detrimental to someone's lives. And so the office, when they, when they saw and they heard that number, they said, no, they, we don't want this. We, we should be identifying because not only does it mean that the person who is wrongfully in the system is prolonged in, in, in that system, but it means that you're using resources that could be better spent helping support victims who, who need help making sure that you're, you're better staffing, your more serious crimes that you want to ensure um, that you do a good job on. And so using this data, we were able to figure out what were the cases that this was happening most frequently with, where, um, where could we make the biggest bang for our buck? And so we helped that office set up a new screening process where when cases come in, they now go to a particular screener who's tasked with reviewing particular types of crimes. And, and what we saw is, he's getting cases down um, and being able to make decisions in a fraction of the time. Uh, most of the time, I think he's doing it in under a day, but on average, he, he's down to less than, less than two weeks. And so what, what that means is those cases get out of the system and prosecutors aren't, aren't working on cases that shouldn't be there uh, and, and, and people who shouldn't be in the system aren't there. Out of curiosity, what types of cases were you seeing it on? Because I have in my head cases where I see they take like seven, eight months and eventually get dropped. Um, and for me, what I see is a lot of times it's the drug cases because that's how long the labs take to um, come back and say, oh, no, it was Gatorade, not fentanyl or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of low level, nonviolent stuff uh, because that's what's in our system. Um, mm -hmm. if you, you know, I think a lot of people who grew up watching law and order, like, yeah. I, did, you know, think that our system is filled with, with the uh, serial murderers that the police are out <laughs> looking for. I mean, the good news, yeah. the good news is it, most of our cities don't have serial murderers. So <laughs> that's, but, but you walk in any courtroom in America and 60, 70% of the cases are going to be low level, generally nonviolent cases that, most people would say should not be the priority of the justice system. Um, you know, when, 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 we, when we survey prosecutors, when we survey police officers, when we survey community members, and we ask them what are the things that they care about in their community and what they think should be uh, the, priorities, uh, the priority of our law enforcement, they say exactly the same thing everywhere I am. We care about murders. We care about the carjackings. We care about the sexual assaults. Okay, well, what do you not care about? They generally don't care about traffic. They don't care about possessory cases. They don't care as much about low-level law enforcement, uh, low-level drug dealing. And then when you actually begin to look at the numbers of who is in their courtroom, it's 60 to 70% of those are, are, are those cases that they don't care about. Yeah. And so part of our approach is, is helping people understand what is exactly happening in our system. And, and, and questioning, are we prioritizing the things that we should be prioritizing? 
because everyone wants to live in a safe community and everyone wants to know that their law enforcement is fair. And we all as taxpayers want to know that our money is being used in a smart, efficient manner that actually helps make our community safer. And, and the reality is in virtually every courtroom in America today, that's just not the case. <laughs> yeah. Very good points. And that's, that's exactly what I see. Um, you know, obviously I'm in Florida, so it, it is kind of a nationwide thing. And, uh, that is a lot of the cases we see. And I see a lot of addiction and a lot of mental health and, um, I would say mostly. Yeah. Sure. We, we've seen, there was a pilot program in Orlando recently that was pretty successful. I don't know if they're still doing it, but I, I want to say, I just saw that they got some sort of federal grant for expanding it or something. It was so, basically cool. for those mental health calls instead of, cause what we'll see a lot of is, you know, when there's some type of crisis, there's nobody to call except for law enforcement. And then, you know, law enforcement show up on scene to like a suicidal person and then they get injured or, you know, battered. And then this person who is trying to take their life now has a felony <laughs> like pending over their head. And so we saw, any better. right. And so we saw like uh, this pilot program in Orlando where they created basically a mental health or community team that would respond to calls like that. Um, and they've actually had some really good success mm -hmm. rates and it, it keeps people out of the court system. It keeps law enforcement more safe because a lot of times those are the more dangerous situations to respond to is when someone's on the verge of taking their and life. And it's like connected really mentally ill people to mental health services, too, yeah. which is great. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in most places across the country, that is true, where, where you'll see something like 40 to 60 percent of the people have some sort of mental health crisis often compounded by some sort of substance use disorder, mm -hmm. often yeah. <laughs> compounded by some sort of poverty issue. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I mean, I used to have these cases all the time where someone walks in the court and, and they, they clearly have mental health issues. They are in crisis. The reason that this whole thing happened because they were in crisis. And, and I was in the system for long enough to know that we did not have the tools or the solutions right. for people in that situation. And that's true of police officers too. Uh, when we closed down mental health institutions in America in the 80s and 90s, we didn't come up with an alternative. We didn't figure out what we were going to do with these people who clearly needed some sort of medical intervention. And so that became that became the responsibility of police who are wholly inadequately trained uh, and often and often the worst people to respond to those incidents. Yeah. Responding to someone in crisis with a person with a gun is right. generally not a good idea. And so... Seems so, like common sense. It, it, of course it is. But the reality is, you know, one of the things I hear from police officers a lot who, who are like, I agree. I don't think we should be the people handling it, but I can't do nothing and there is no one else. Yeah. So what, what am I supposed to do? And I think that is really one of the questions that I think people working on justice reform, people who, who, who care. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a place where both on the right and the left we can agree on this one. Um, yeah. And I think we can come up with solutions to this one. And so there's, there, there is a lot of models of, of police departments that are having uh, and dispatches that are sending non-uniformed, non-armed people to, to, some, to most of the mental health crises they can. Not enough of this is happening, but at least we're beginning to see this trend in more and more communities. Yeah. And hopefully when they see the data from these mm -hmm. programs, such as the one that was in Orlando, they say, oh, this is a good idea. Look at all, look at all the success here. And they kind of create an expansion on that. 
Yeah, um, I mean, unfortunately, not enough of these programs are being adequately studied to build that evidence base, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, because doing evaluations costs money to doing right. this analysis costs money to, to being able to have a scientifically valid conclusion take, right. takes money. And, and a lot of times programs don't get set up in a way to even be able to be properly evaluated. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's like a pilot program that's like, this is a good idea. How do you guys, um, how do you collect data and what types of data do you guys collect? So generally what we're doing is we're working with case management systems or existing systems that the police use in the course of their business. So it could be dispatch, for example, and uh, it could be court data. We, we generally go right to the source and mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time working with our partners, making sure that the information is accurate because while while we are beginning to see more and more data inside the justice system, a lot of it is of very poor quality. Uh, a lot of it is insufficient to do the kind of analysis to answer, to answer the questions that we all really want to answer. And so we do a lot of work because at the end of the day, if you can't rely on the numbers, it doesn't really matter what your analysis is. And so right. we try <laughs> to make sure we understand how do you use this word in your community? What does this mean when you say that a case was disposed in this way? Mm -hmm. ah. and, then, and then I've got a bunch of really smart data scientists who make sure that common data entry errors that, that happen to humans all the time. Like, you know, the other, day, the other day I was like, can you give me an example? And they said, well, there was a case where something took place in 1908. Like we're fairly ah. certain, we're fairly <laughs> certain nothing in this case took place in 1908. So let's figure out why there's an error. And yeah. you can begin to identify things like that and, and, and correct them. Yeah. Those might pose an issue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when you are working with, so I know you work with kind of local and one of the things about um, that I really like that you guys kind of talk about on your website is that the criminal justice system isn't just this one system. It's broken down to all these localities. Um, like who, how do you determine, how do people, I guess, reach out to you to want to work with you? Um, and do you guys have, oh, hey, this is this one specific problem we're having in our community? Or how does that whole, how do you kind of start partnerships and communities? I guess is a better way to phrase that. <laughs> I mean, initially, it started with people who I knew from my work when I was at the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. um, and then over time, I would see prosecutors doing something that I thought was innovative uh, or tackling a problem that no one else was doing. So we did work in St. Paul, Minnesota with uh, Ramsey County uh, attorney John Choi. He was really concerned about pretextual traffic stops. Those are those are traffic stops for things like broken taillights or danglies from the rearview mirror where police have the authority to stop you. And what we see in a lot of communities is police have used this technique as a way to proactively tackle whatever crime um, they're trying to go after. Uh, what, what our studies have shown is that it's a very ineffective way of finding contraband. They're finding guns in less than 1% of the time. And that means oh. uh, they're finding drugs usually less than 3% of the time. And so that means that 97% of the people who are being stopped um, at random, because that is this technique, is they're mm -hmm. being stopped at random. They're not yielding uh, any, any evidentiary strength and they're certainly not a good public safety stop but you're pissing off a lot of your civilians who are precisely the same people that we who are, who are victims of crime and who are witnesses to crime who we ultimately need their cooperation with mm. and so what they were doing in ramsey county they said you know what this is a terrible policy we think it's ineffective 
we are going to begin declining cases where your contraband was found during one of these stops. And the St. Paul Police Department also agreed. They also thought that this was an, a, a terrible way to do it. And so they put this policy in effect and they saw dramatic uh, reductions in, in stops. They saw a dramatic reduction for, for all racial groups, but it particularly impacted uh, communities of color who were disproportionately being stopped. And all of, all of this was happening without any change in, in, in public safety metrics. Things were, things were staying stable. And so, you know, I, I had reached out to him because I believed this to be the case. You know, you said like, yeah, that makes sense. Send, send people without guns to mental health cases. It'll probably get better results. We see a lot of these common sense actions and we say, all right, we, we want to help you study that to, to make sure that you're right. And if, if you're sort of right, but you could be better, we want to make sure that you could be better. Other places have reached out to us um, and said, you know, we really like your approach. So typically when I think about a place, I'm looking for three things. Who are the people? I mean, I always start with who are the people, because if we're going to accomplish anything important, we can only do it working with other people. And I've decided I'm too old to work with assholes. So <laughs> we, we like to work with people who, who have an idea and that really want to take on hard issues to make their communities better. We want to make sure that the community is adequately supported in terms of resources. Who do they already have the table? Do they have community groups at the table? Do they have local funding at the table? Do they have the police at the table? Because the broader the partnership, when we start one of these things off, the better, sure. the better outcomes we're going to have. Yeah. And then and then third, what is the problem they're trying to solve? Because, yeah, every justice system in America is different. We have over mm. 2000 justice systems in America mm -hmm. and they're each run by locally elected officials. And they're the ones handling somewhere between 87 percent and 95 percent of criminal cases. So when we talk about this massive problem of mass incarceration, when we're talking about all of these things, it is both truly massive, uh, but it's also very local. And that can make people feel really overwhelmed a lot of times because like, how are we going to fix this problem if we have to deal with it, you know, 2000 different justice systems? And I agree. If that's the way you think of it, it's terrible. But the <laughs> flip side is also true. Each of these 2000 communities can can be incubators of new ideas. Right. And, and and they don't have to get the national Republicans and Democrats to have a conversation like we don't need those people. We yeah. can do this locally with local partnerships. And so. We try to find those communities where all of those things are together. You've got motivated leaders. You've got a problem that people are willing to try to solve. And you've got some degree of resources that people are already willing to commit to solving that problem. And then we just come in with our approach, with, with our data scientists, with our human-centered design, with our systems thinking, with our former prosecutors, with our community uh, liaison experts. And, and we help work communities through a process where they solve their own problem in a way that makes sense for that community. Hmm. And then when we find that solution, our goal is to find something that's generalizable. And so, you know, take, take the insights that we had in South Carolina. They set up a screening process. They identified cases they didn't want in the system faster. They're saving a ton of resources. And then people called us up and said, we'd like to do that. Like we want to, you know, like that seems smart. We heard about like, you guys. How do we do that? And so we're now at the phase where we're trying to be able to support more and more communities. Mm -hmm. But we got to, you know, I think one of the hardest part is the, one of the hardest questions: who's going to pay for this? Right. Um, yeah. Right. Like we can solve the problem, but the question is who's going to pay for it? And it and it's hard because, as I'm sure you you've noticed over the last year, 
just a lot of the energy that followed the murder of George Floyd in terms of, of, of everyone feeling like we were doing, we were having a real national reckoning on some of these issues has faded. And now that we're facing that, we're facing pushback on all fronts. And so it's really slowed down that progress on the one hand. On the other hand, we now have communities who are saying, yeah, we have the money. We want to bring you in because we recognize that getting bad cases out of the system will save us money. Reducing right. unnecessary incarceration will save us money. Deflecting people to address root causes of their stuff will save us money. And we're willing to, to spend a little bit now to invest in that future savings that is both more humane and way more effective. Yeah. Yeah, we it's need you so, in Florida. I was just going to say, it's like so, um, it's so nice hearing you talk about communities that are wanting to do this. We, li- we live in communities where it's, we're in the, an election year is coming up. And so we're very tough on crime um, policies currently going very strong here. Um, so it's like, it is a little tougher. A lot of wacky things are crimes now also. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's so nice to hear that there is movement um, that is going around the country and that people are wanting to solve problems. Sometimes I think it feels a little hopeless mm-hmm. um, from where we're sitting. Not hopeless. I don't want to say I don't ever feel hopeless. Um, I do see a lot of, you know, right in what I'm working with. Like I do see a lot of like mini changes or I do see a lot of players uh, in the system that are willing to kind of work on things to get better results. So that is nice. I think overall where we're at right now is just a little um tough sometimes because that election year is coming up for both the uh, prosecutor and I think also the sheriff. And so we're having some really like tough on crime, like, you know, policies to make things look like we're really tackling crime. Um, Probably not database. It's it's really unfortunate that the people at the helm of most justice systems in America are elected officials. Yeah. It's, it just, it doesn't make sense as, as a community public service that that a lot of times that is happening and and what we what we see over time is that those local races can get hijacked by national politics you know depending on depending on your party and who's running and what the key race of your party is like that's going to affect downstream who your district attorney is and and that's incredibly problematic Mm. and 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 oftentimes we elect people who don't actually have the skills to do the job in Florida, I mean, the elected yeah. people get kicked out of office too. Right, like, it's like they're, politi- they're politicians, but you're also running an office of sometimes 50, 60, 100 mm-hmm. people, depending on how big your jurisdiction is. Yeah. And, and I don't know why, why we think that anyone who's never done this job can adequately come in. And so one of the things that we hope to do is like we hope to come in with a data team, with former mm-hmm. prosecutors, with policy people, because the reality is people coming into those positions do not have those skill sets. It is a very steep learning curve. And guess what? You don't have that many years. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one of the problems with electoral politics is, yeah. is sometimes mm-hmm. you got four years maybe. Yeah. And it takes you at least a year to figure out what's going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it is funny. We've had, it's not funny. We've had two progressive prosecutors be just removed from office this year. Mm-hmm. Um, for, I'm not really sure. 
<laughs> but <laughs> nothing but, of so substance. <laughs> so yeah, so that is like what's going on here. So it's so nice to hear that there's communities that are working towards solutions because I think all in all, and you've touched on it a couple of times, like we all want safe communities, cost effective. Um, dealing with people in ways that make sense to where they're not just going to keep getting wrapped up in the system. I think like everybody wants that for the most part Um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, so it is nice to hear that that's happening, you know, around the country and that there's there's data and evidence behind it. That's the coolest part Mm -hmm. about all of this is just hearing that there is a way to study that and then present it and say, look, this is effective. So, and that other communities are reaching out and saying, Hey, we want to do that too. That is, that is just it's awesome. Very enlightening. It's very cool. I mean, it's, it's one of, one of the sad things is you, you hear a lot of the political, the political discourse and you've got like on one side, you got people who are like, we want no government. And then you've got the other side is like, we want lots of government. Yeah. And then there's those of us who are like, how about we have the government that we have at least function effectively? Right. Hey, nice. <laughs> why, why, why don't we do that? Like, like, we don't need to build anything new. Let's just try to take all of these resources, the billions of dollars that we're spending on these things, and just try to make sure that everyone's doing their job better. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we, we take a systems thinking approach to this and, and using ideas that come out of engineering, that come out of architecture, and recognizes that this is a system. And a system is just a set of interconnected elements that are designed to achieve a purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. So think of anything like that's about the broadest possible term you can. But but there's a but there's a central there's a central concept in systems thinking that says a system is not the sum of its parts. It's the products of its interactions. And if you really want to affect that ultimate outcome, you have to change the interactions between the component parts. And, and in our political environment, it is often set up for conflict. I mean, mm-hmm. the justice system is an adversarial system. That's how it was designed. And so to really break that down, you know, when I talk to prosecutors about certain things, they blame the defense. If you talk to defense, they're blaming the prosecutor. The prosecutor, (laughs) they're blaming the police. And the reality is they all contribute to these problems in a way. And the nature of their interaction often creates escalation or or, or bad out where, where you're just getting bad results. But the only way to fix that is to bring those people together to break it down. Yeah. And so where you where you've got jurisdictions where where there is some personal animus and a lot of times it is personal, it's not political. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. going to have a lot harder time making progress in those places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know I wanted to hear about the book that you wrote, mm. Fire on the Levee. Um, and it's a murder mystery, kind of. But true. Hear- <laughs> oh. But true. <laughs> Not it's, true. It's all true. It's oh, I was going to say it sounded true when I was reading about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it, it's a story of a case I got very early into my career at the Justice Department. I was about two years in. I was a rookie when a file landed on my desk uh, that described the burned uh, remains of a man that had been found in behind a levee after Hurricane Katrina, uh, and. There was an article attached with it by an investigative journalist named A.C. Thompson that suggested that the last people who had seen this man was the police department. And so three and a half years after Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans, this article came out It landed on my desk. And, and I was sent down to team up with a rookie FBI agent down in New Orleans to try to figure out did the police have anything to do with the burning of this man's body? Oh my gosh. So the book follows the investigation from the file landing on our desk that 
to to uh, to an investigation that lasted uh, for about uh, about a year and a half, I believe, um, and ultimately led to charges against five New Orleans Police Department officers for killing Henry Glover for burning his body and for conducting a, a cover-up. And so the wow. book Ooh, the yeah. book is part who done it murder mystery. It's part legal procedural because I, I was the one who tried those cases. And so uh, you get all the all the legal procedural happening. And then it's part policy book because part of the reason why I wrote about this book was is even though it was extreme and, and, and unusual and, and fascinating for all sorts of reasons, it also is quite representative of, of a lot of the problems that we see in the justice system. Um, and, and I think it points the way to, to how we can try to fix it. Oh. Sounds awesome. I want to buy it. Where can I get it? You can buy it anywhere. Um, anywhere you buy your book from your local independent uh, bookstore to a giant behemoth like Amazon. You can find it <laughs> any place in any place in between. All right. Very cool. It sounds very much up our alley and our mm -hmm. listeners alley because those Definitely. are all of the things that we talk about. So mm -hmm. very cool. What um, inspired you to want to write the book? Was that well, like I one of your most fascinating stories? And you're like, I just have to write this. Oh, I knew I would write a book about it as I was living it um, mm. because because it was so unusual. Right. It's set it's set in New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. For those of you who don't remember Hurricane Katrina, uh, it wasn't really the hurricane that destroyed the city. It was a level three. It created a lot of damage. But what what really transformed that city was it broke protective levees that surrounded the city. And so 80 percent of the city went underwater uh, immediately, uh, really cutting it off from the world. And, and the response and the aid was quite slow in coming. And so. This case is set during that time, four days after after the mm. storm had, had hit New Orleans. And it takes place in a part of New Orleans that actually had stayed dry, a part of town called Algiers, where, where people seemed to think that everything was okay initially because they didn't have electricity, they didn't have cell phones, like no one knew what was happening in the rest of the city. But over time, it became clear that things were not okay. Uh, and, and so I knew it was an interesting story. and. I think it just speaks it, it just speaks to so many of the challenges facing our justice system in yeah. terms of how we co police communities, um, how uh, how we treat certain parts uh, of, of our community. And and it tells us a lot about how we police and how we how we enforce the law in this country. Uh, but I also think it speaks to bigger issues about humanity. I mean, this is this is a question about humans trying to survive during a time where many people believed their city was done. Uh, mm. They believed there would be no future accountability. And so I think this story raises a lot of questions about how are we going to respond in the, in the event of societal collapse? Mm. How are we, how are we going to respond when all of this falls apart? Because the hurricane that hit New Orleans, it, it sadly is not unusual. And we're going to see a lot more hurricanes. In, in the coming years as, as the planet warms, as waters are warm. And we also see a lot of attacks on our institutions at the moment. I mean, I've never seen more attacks on institutions than, than we've seen in the last five years. And so people are, are having less faith in their government. And, and what, I, what I think this story has is what happens when those two things collide? Mm, uh, yeah. how, how do the police respond? How do civilians respond? And ultimately how can we try to ensure that these things don't happen in the future? Yeah. 
I can't wait to wow. read it. I was just going to say, I'm really excited to <laughs> order this and read this. It sounds very much up Gin and Justice Alley. Mm-hmm. I know we're about out of time. And I ask everybody, if our listeners could take one thing from this interview, what do you want it to be? The close, the, the fastest way you've ever said that in your life ever. <laughs> I know you got to go. <laughs> I'm just looking at the time. Football, aunt, guys, football. <laughs> I, guess, I guess my biggest takeaway from the readers is like our system is absolutely broken. So I don't, I don't, I don't mean to, to, to say this in, in a way that's discouraging, but the thing is we can absolutely fix this. Um, that, that, that's what I think is these, these systems were built by people. They are run by people and they can be fixed by people. There is so much low hanging fruit in the system because our system is wasteful. Our system is harmful and it's routinely producing outcomes that are not in the best interest of our communities. And, and so we can fix it. It's hard. It takes time. It takes money, but but we can actually fix these problems if we approach it uh, with with a more open minded, innovative, scientific, evidence based, and really collaborative. Because in order to really pull this off, we have to work across a lot of diverse communities. We've got to work with law enforcement. We've got to work with communities, um, and we got to work with the health system. Like all of these players are going to play a huge role in in, in trying to solve these problems if we can just yeah. bring them together community players everybody involved in the community we're going to go ahead and put the website in the show notes uh can people donate people can donate right there um if if you are an elected official who's listening to the show and interested in trying to use a more data-informed evidence-based approach let us know you can reach us just slip your uh, name underneath the prosecutor's doors (laughs) Yeah, if if you are a funder, if you if you are a, a justice system funder and want to try to bring something to your community and try to mobilize a big group of, in your community, we're we're open and yeah, awesome. buy the book, fire fire on the levee. Yeah. Yes, Justice Innovation Lab and Fire on the Levee. We will put the info for both in the show notes. Mm-hmm. I could seriously talk to you for hours, which I can't say about every prosecutor. So, you know, this is like really great. I'm just, it was very nice meeting you. Thank you for all of the very awesome work you are doing and continuing to do. And uh, I can't wait to read your book and tell you what I think about it. Definitely reach out. And once you've read it, you want to have me back on the show? Let me know. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) All right, guys. If you enjoyed this, go ahead and leave that five-star review and you can find all of the information for Justice Innovation Lab as well as well as Fire on the Levy in the show notes below. And we will see you next time on Gin and Justice. All editing for Gin and Justice done by Gin and Justice Podcast. Artwork by Justin Cardone. Photography by Kimber Schwakey. We'll see you next time on Gin and Justice.